The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. At any given day, the Knesset, which is chaired by a member of Netanyahu's own Likud party, uh, could simply bring to vote for second and third hearing in one day uh, this bill, and it could pass. And Netanyahu has given no assurances, no promises, no guarantees that it wouldn't happen. He said he's pausing it until the summer, which would allow now for Passover and then for some of the secular Israeli holidays, which are the Day of Independence, but also Memorial Days for uh, those fallen in service, which is a big deal in Israel, of course, and Holocaust Day. Those could pass. Those are, those are sort of the more unifying days, usually. And then in the summer session of the Knesset, he says he will pass it. In the meantime, he's giving an opportunity for the president to convene uh, negotiations between the coalition and the, and the opposition. I'm Scott R. Anderson. This is the Lawfare Podcast for March 30th, 2023. For months, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has been promising a set of legal reforms favored by partners in his far-right coalition government that many fear would spell the end of liberal democracy in the state of Israel. But this week, those efforts hit a roadblock in the form of an unprecedented degree of popular resistance, one that ultimately led Netanyahu to put his reform proposals on hold, at least for the moment. Yesterday morning, my Brookings Institution colleague, senior fellow Natan Sachs, convened an exceptional panel of experts to discuss these fast-moving developments, including two of our other Brookings colleagues, Amos Harel, a leading Israeli military and defense expert, and Shibli Telhami, the Anwar Sadat Professor of Peace and Development at the University of Maryland, as well as leading Israeli journalist and legal expert Alana Diane. We're releasing that audio here. But to give our listeners some additional background, I sat down with Natan separately to lay out recent developments and their significance. Here's my conversation with Natan. The audio for the panel will follow. It's the Lawfare Podcast for March 30th, Israel's Overlapping Crises. So Natan, we have seen over the last few weeks, last few months, really, an unprecedented set of events taking place in the country of Israel. But let us first, before we get into the most recent phase of the events, the thing that's really driving today's conversation, let's first take a step back and frame ourselves in terms of this reform package that is really at the root of a lot of these ongoing discussions in Israel that we see Prime Minister Netanyahu putting forward. Tell us a little bit about what his proposed reforms would do and why they're seen as so significant in the context of the Israeli legal system. The coalition put forward initially one plan, and then it's morphed into a few more things. Uh, but So let me sketch sort of broadly what they put forward. And 
It was presented in particular by Justice Minister Yariv Levine and pushed forward by the chair of the Judiciary Committee in the Knesset. They proposed four main elements. The first is to limit judicial review, to disallow any judicial review of basic laws. Basic laws in Israel are the equivalent of articles of a constitution. Israel does not have a written constitution. Instead, the Constituent Assembly in 1948 decided to rename itself just the first Knesset and to legislate over the decades basic laws that collectively would constitute something like a constitution. So they would disallow any review of basic laws, and basic laws can be passed very easily. They can be passed by a simple uh, majority of the Knesset, uh, or I guess a supermajority in the sense of uh, 50 plus, 50% plus one of the members of Knesset can pass it, and in a very short time. There's no need for any other external bodies to consent in any way. They would second um, limit dramatically how many justices and in what form could strike down regular legislation as being contrary to to basic laws. Uh, The initial proposal was for a unanimous decision of all 15 justices would be necessary to strike down any legislation. Then they brought it down slightly. They also proposed, and this is the element that they are still pushing and now have paused, but it's really right on the brink. It's passed all committee debates and is ready for voting is to politicize further the process of judicial appointments. Unlike the United States, the president, who is symbolic, of course, does not nominate judges. Instead, there's a committee, and the committee is composed of politicians from both the coalition and the opposition, some justices, including the president of the Supreme Court, and members of the bar. They would change that dramatically and give the coalition a majority in that committee, such that, in a sense, they could appoint any justices that they want, again, with no other recourse. A fourth element uh, would be also to downgrade the role of legal advisors. That currently, legal advisors to the ministries uh, are interpreters, are official interpreters of the law. They would downgrade them to advisors. And perhaps a fifth element, if I'm counting correctly, perhaps most dramatically, is that a bare majority of the Knesset, 61 members of 120, could simply override any judicial review. So if uh, the Supreme Court were to strike down a law, 61 members of the Knesset, in other words, a majority, which the coalition by design almost necessarily has, could simply override judicial review, reinstate a law, and make the Supreme Court uh, moot, in a sense, in this whole process. To explain why this is so dramatic, why this is so important, it's worth thinking, comparing the United States and Israel for a moment. I'll qualify this by saying that uh, I, I, on this call, am the non-lawyer. But in the United States, if a small majority, say, of the United States House of Representatives wants, wants to pass a law that is especially egregious, it wants to curtail the, the rights of an individual or a small minority, well, the House still needs the consent, of course, of the Senate, where there's a filibuster. Of course, that could be changed, but there's a filibuster. Then that bill would have to go to the president, who could also veto it. To overcome that veto is hard. It would have to go back. It'd have to get a bigger majority. All of this would then also be under judicial review, by the way, not only by the Supreme Court, by many courts, federal courts. And all of that would be operating in a context where there is a clearly defined constitution, including a clearly defined Bill of Rights. So everyone knows what they are referring to, and all the judges and justices could refer very specifically to what the Bill of Rights are. Of course, there are some issues that are not even federal. There are state, many issues. In that case, even at the most extreme case where a state passes something that is truly egregious to someone, at least they have one recourse. It's, of course, an extreme one, but they can move to another state. They are citizens of the United States, and they could move to another one if it's not the case there. 
Israel, on the contrary, it's a small country, it's non-federal. If a small majority of the only chamber of the legislature, the Knesset, if 61 members of the 120 supported a bill, for example, to curtail the ability of, say, the Arab minority, 20% of the citizens, uh, to run for office, demanding that candidates for office, for example, declare allegiance to the state as a Jewish democratic state, something which for most Jews in Israel is uncontroversial, uh, but for most Arab citizens of Israel is extremely controversial. There would be only one constraint to this, perhaps, and that is the Supreme Court. There is no Senate, there's no presidential veto, there's no other, and no other recourse, only the Supreme Court wearing a special hat, not as a Supreme Court of Appeals, but as a high court of justice, as it's known in Israel. They would do so without a defined constitution, as I said, and without a clearly defined Bill of Rights. There are basic laws, in particular one, that is used uh, in this instance, uh, but it's, it's much more vague than the American Bill of Rights. And this is precisely what the Netanyahu-Levine legislation would abolish, because if 61 members of the Knesset can overcome any review, and if review becomes extremely difficult, and if the court itself is full of political appointees, then there is no real constraint on what a coalition would want. One last word. Since Israel is a parliamentary system, it's not just that the legislature would do something. The executive, and especially the prime minister, are, in a sense, arms of the Knesset. And in practice, that means the reverse. It means that the prime minister, who is the most important member of Knesset by far, controls a coalition. Otherwise, he simply or she simply would not be prime minister. And therefore, they have a majority almost always by design. Not completely always, but almost always. And if they have a majority, that means they control the Knesset. So there's really very little separation of powers in most parliamentary systems between the parliament and the executive. Now, they would also subsume the judiciary, and they would, in all sense and purposes, destroy liberal democracy. They would create uh, unbridled majoritarian rule to the degree that there would still be free elections, and in the short term there would be, the majority could do, in a sense, whatever it wants. So the set of reforms sounds very technical on the details, but that latter conclusion, the end state it arrives at, this, this clear majoritarian government with really no holds barred beyond that, is pretty dramatic. And on top of that, this is all layering on top of a unique political moment in Israel, a country we've seen hold multiple elections the last few years, cycle through a rapid succession of governments, and this being one of the more, you know, on the political periphery of those coalitions we've seen to come forward, even though it's led by a familiar figure in Netanyahu. How do the politics play into this? What part is this majoritarian plan playing into the agenda of the different members of the coalition that Netanyahu is now leading? And why is that seen as a threat by others in Israeli society? Yes, well, Israel really is coming out, as you're saying, from this, this political crisis, perhaps it's not completely over, but it had five successive elections, and Netanyahu finally won the last one decisively. Um, but he did so with a very extreme right-wing coalition. And when I say very extreme, I know I sound by like just some lefty describing it, but uh, really, including elements that the Likud party, Netanyahu's own party, had always shunned in the past. Now, outright Kahanis members, very senior members, actually, of this cabinet, including the minister in charge of police, and the finance minister who's not a Kahanist, but is very close to it, and is a very influential, extremely important member of this cabinet. There are two important elements here. The first is just the presence of these extreme members, especially these two factions, headed by the finance minister and what's now known as the minister of national security, but really police. These two ministers and their factions bring into mainstream governance 
some of the most extreme views in Israel that are very far from where the median voter is, very far even from the median Likud voter. And that means that the stakes become even higher or even more apparent. Usually when you try to make these technical kind of changes, as you said, I'm sure Netanyahu and his Minister of Justice thought these are technical changes most people don't know. I myself was not versed in all these things uh, not too long ago. And so therefore, we'll be able to pass it. But when faced with the possibility of unbridled majoritarian rule, and when the majority has brought in it such extreme elements, so far from mainstream, even just mainstream Jewish Israeli population, the outcome was deeply frightening for many Israelis. I'll give you an example. Bezalel Smotlich, who's the Minister of Finance, he's also a minister in the, Depart- in the Ministry of Defense, which sounds odd, but he has that second hat alongside the, the regular Minister of Defense. And he's a member of the Security Cabinet, which by law is the Commander-in-Chief of the military. Netanyahu is not. It's the Security Cabinet. Smotlich, after a, a terrorist attack emanating from a town of Hawala in the Northern West Bank, said, uh, and then there was uh, a massive attack by settlers vigilantes operating there and burning down in really horrendous images with the military doing doing much too little to stop them, in some cases just standing by. Uh, Smotich then said that uh, Huala should be erased. And then he qualified, he said, but not by vigilantes, but by the state. This caused a major uproar among many people, including some reserve pilots. And the reserve element of the Air Force is very central to the operation of the Air Force, which itself is very central to the strength of the IDF, which is a strong military, of course. Later, Smotich apologized, and he said uh, that he spoke to a friend of his who was a pilot. I don't know if Smotich's apology was genuine. I'm very skeptical of what he says. The pilot then explained to Smotich, look, when a senior member of the cabinet says, this is what I want to do, that's not far from an order. It's not a cabinet decision, but it's not far from an order. And you're telling me that now I should accept unbridled authority for the executive with no Supreme Court, which Israelis are very used to the Supreme Court as an element of decision making, saying, no, that is illegal. You cannot do that. I'll I'll just explain. Sometimes politicians would say things or even pass bills knowing that the Supreme Court will strike them down and relying on the Supreme Court to save themselves from themselves. This now caused or helped cause um, reservists in the Air Force to say they will not volunteer for reserve duty, which is absolutely essential for the way the Israeli's national security apparatus operates. And Smotrich then apologized. It was, I again, I, we should take it with a huge grain of salt because this was not one off-the-cuff remark he made. He's He has detailed plans of what he plans to do in the West Bank, and they are terrible. Uh, but that's an example of how the combination of these extremists and these uh, proposed legislations interact and cause some of this uproar. So really, in the last few weeks, we have seen a number of independent developments mount up that ultimately, at the risk of of giving away some spoilers here, led Netanyahu to postpone the effort to advance this plan uh, a few months. And each one is a pretty dramatic factor, particularly when viewed in the context of the other. So I kind of want to run through each of them one by one so you can give us a sense about how they played out. The first one is, I think, the one that's most familiar probably to most listeners, and that is the really unprecedented popular protests we see taking place across Israel. Tell us a little bit about that and how exceptional a development that really is. Well, this is unprecedented. And I say this uh, in the context of a country that has had many big demonstrations. I grew up in Israel and I demonstrated many times. 
And uh, there were often many tens of thousands of people in attendance and probably more than 100,000. Uh, most famously, one of the most famous demonstrations from the early 1980s after a massacre in Beirut and two Palestinian refugee camps, a huge number, probably hundreds of thousands, came out to demonstrate against the atrocity and demand the resignation of the Minister of Defense at the time, Ariel Sharon, who was in fact dismissed later. We've also seen in 2011, we saw mass demonstrations offered over the cost of living and in essence, the welfare state. But what we've seen now is completely different. We've seen huge numbers of, of Israelis come out uh, every Saturday, but also during the week, come up to the Knesset to demonstrate in front of the Knesset in Jerusalem. Um, and for Israelis, that's considered far from Tel Aviv, although it's not. And they would do so, especially on Tuesdays and Wednesdays when the committee would meet, Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays when the plenary often votes. And they would follow all the details of the Judiciary Committee in the Knesset, uh, the legal advisor to the Judiciary Committee, an excellent person has become household name. And we've seen just an enormous attention given to constitutional law, to these kinds of issues, and mass, mass numbers of people coming out. It's really hard to state how many different segments of civil society and the economy have come out in, in voicing their opposition, signing petitions, industrialists, high-techs, economists, social workers, as I mentioned, reservists, uh, people of all walks of life, many people from the right wing who used to serve under Netanyahu, his former governors of the Bank of Israel, two people he appointed as governors of the Bank of Israel, warning the, of the economic consequences of what this might, might do. Uh, legal experts, essentially almost all legal experts in Israel, save for a very few, in particular one think tank with American money that, that has been pushing this. A very wide swath uh, of the population uh, opposing this, especially from elites, to use that word, um, and then just enormous numbers coming out of the streets. What really was remarkable more than, and it became, it became very, very widespread with a lot of energy. Then when Netanyahu declared that he would fire the Minister of Defense, who had voiced his concern to Netanyahu uh, in private, and then came out in public saying that he would not support this because of what it was doing internally to the military, and Netanyahu fired Yoav Gallant, and the response at 10, 11 p.m. and into the wee hours of the morning was an outpouring of numbers we've never seen into the streets and the highways. If any of the listeners have visited Israel, then they have certainly driven on the main highway that passes through Tel Aviv. That highway was a river of people, uh, people with enormous energy, chanting that the those proposing this coup, as, as many refer to it, have happened on the wrong generation. This is the wrong generation to try to play with. And uh, chanting democracy, demokratia. Uh, we've seen demonstrations throughout the world in front of the embassy and when Smotrich visited Washington and London, excuse me, Paris. We've seen um, just an outpouring that we've never seen before. And, and this is what caused the coalition and Netanyahu, this in part is what caused Netanyahu to, to buckle in a sense and to at least propose postponing, although it, it may be a bit of a sham, but at least attempt to show that he's postponing this legislation. So you have already mentioned the role that the military played in this, or at least particularly military and national security concerns through the Minister of Defense. But we've also seen more rank and file members of the Israeli military play a really central role just in the last few days. Tell us a little bit more about that and how that has fit into this kind of popular resistance and movement against these set of reforms. 
Well, as I said, reservists were, were very central to this, in particular pilots um, who are so important and also uh, intelligence officers, but also others saying we will simply not show up or not volunteer, at least. Pilots are volunteers and that we will not show up for volunteer duty. I should note that this is not a, a cross-section of the military. Military in Israel, military service in Israel is in theory compulsory. It really includes uh, most of the population, but does exclude the ultra-Orthodox Jews who are exempt and also Arab Israelis who are exempt. But for the rest of the population, it is compulsory. And so there are a lot, there are big segments of the population and they tend to be the lower socioeconomic classes who also tend to be more right-wing in Israel, more supportive of Netanyahu. And there you saw much less of this phenomenon in the military. So there is a very important sociological, political effect here. Pilots and military intelligence are very stereotypically elite, and that is associated in the Israeli political mind with the left wing. And so there is a very strong element here that is also very dangerous, of course, for the military and its, its uh, capacity to, to operate without pol- politics, because we do sort of see this political or even class kind of differences, and that is dangerous from the domestic Israeli perspective. But we have seen simply very large numbers of people in all walks of life and in all walks of the military as well come out and and declare that they will not stand for this because it is such a fundamental break with how Israel perceived itself and how Israelis perceived their country, not only as the Jewish state, as people often refer to it, but as a Jewish democratic state, which is absolutely essential for most Israelis. Another factor that we know has entered into the equation, or at least we're told has entered into the equation for Netanyahu and those members of his coalition uh, and particularly those in the cabinet, has been economic considerations, uh, considerations about what this would mean for Israel's relationship with the world, for trading partners, for, for the role it plays in regional and global economy. Tell us a little bit about that and why those concerns may have played a role in this particular decision to at least create the perception of delaying or holding off or revisiting the full set of reforms. Well, Israel in the past decade or two has been, two decades in fact, has been economically a very big success story. Since the end of the Second Intifada, which had a a deep recession accompanying it, uh, Israel has has grown in a very good pace and has, its economy has also changed a lot. It's become very reliant on the tech industry. The startup nation, quote unquote, is, is more than hype. It is actually a reality where a lot of the Israeli economy, uh, a significant portion in fact, is driven by tech. Now, tech, of course, is also quite mobile. Tech can be done from Tel Aviv, but it can also be done from New York or San Francisco or even Dublin. And it's quite easy for tech companies to simply decide to operate uh, elsewhere. That's also a downside of an economy relying on them. There's less jobs involved necessarily, but, uh, but it also is a threat. Now, many economists, I mentioned before that you know, the governors of, of the Bank of Israel in the past uh, threatened that this kind of environment where rule of law is not guaranteed is in the long term very detrimental for the economy. We know this from many settings in the world. The the rule of law and the trust that investors have in the application of law and its impartial application in particular is essential for uh, for guaranteeing debt, for example. And and in many countries where the rule of law is suspect, where where corruption is higher, you also see much less FBI because people do not trust that their investment will go to what they what they wanted to. And so there's been a lot of uh, warnings. Uh, Itay Ater, an important economist in Tel Aviv University, has published papers on this and many other economists. And in fact, international credit agencies and banks have issued warning. JP Morgan 
Um, also, Moody's reportedly was thinking of upgrading Israel's credit uh, rating and halted with that. There was possibility that S&P would downgrade. These are major things for a small country, and it's something that people do pay attention to, in particular because Netanyahu himself styles himself as economically savvy and as someone who has played a role in uh, Israel's economic success. Of course, as prime minister for most of this period that I'm mentioning, he certainly deserves some of the credit. It can be overblown, and some of his policies from the early 2000s were reversed by by he himself later on. So I think his image is slightly different than people often portray it. But in his political image, certainly he wants to portray himself as an economic success story. And here are all the voices, including his own former advisors, very respected economists of all, all kinds and in the world, warning very deeply from this move. That had a big effect as well. And speaking of the outside world, one other major outside actor weighed in recently in a way that may or may not have had a major impact, but seems to be at least being perceived as having weighed in heavily. And that is, of course, President Joe Biden of the United States. He held a conversation with Netanyahu earlier this week that had a readout, which is the only public record we have of it, that was definitely a little bit more targeted and a little bit more aimed at uh, potential concerns over this issue set than other readouts we've seen recently, but was still was relatively guarded, I would say, uh, or not particularly direct. But just in the last really 48 hours, even 24 hours, we've really seen a much more direct engagement by the Biden administration around this issue set. Tell us a little bit about how its approach has evolved and what that meant for Netanyahu. Well, let me preface this by saying that when Israelis think about the world, they think about two parts. The big part is the United States, and the smaller, slightly smaller part is everything else. Israel is very, very American-focused in terms of its foreign relations, and that's true also about the Israeli political psyche. So Israeli voters, they primarily don't vote on this, of course, but they do know a lot about foreign policy, more than most countries, and the United States looms very, very large in this, even in popular political considerations. So it's much more than, as you know, if, if the UK made a comment about the United States, most American voters won't even hear about it or care about it. That's not the case. Israel knows and Israeli, Israeli voters understand just how important America is to Israel's national security and international standing. And therefore, when the president speaks, it definitely registers it. It's the headline news in Israel. Biden's words are the headline news in Israel, uh, without a doubt. Biden started out really, I think, surprising some people in the sense that he's not Obama. And it probably shouldn't have surprised anyone because he is not Obama after all. And he's also not where most of or where some of the left side of the Democratic Party are, certainly on Israel. Biden, of course, has been around for a long time and has been a senator, was a senator for a long time. And his relationship to Israel is a very standard, a very pro-Israel democratic approach. But on top of that, Biden came into office with such a huge problem set, so many different issues to deal with domestically. And then, you know, COVID was still raging, of course. And then also internationally with the new pacing challenge, China, then later with the war in Europe, uh, enormous challenges in the Middle East. The Israeli issue, the Israeli-Palestinian issue were not remotely the top of the, the file. Uh, Afghanistan is not quite the Middle East, but Afghanistan was much higher. Yemen was higher. And of course, Iran, the question there. So from Biden's perspective, he wanted to have quiet on the Israeli side. Really, the most, the sort of the top desire was to manage this, get through this, not have any drama with Israel, and move on. 
Of course, he had a government, the non-Netanyahu government, the Bennett-Lapid government, uh, which was not perfect from the American perspective, was much preferable from the Biden administration's perspective than Netanyahu. Uh, but then now the new Netanyahu government caused deep, deep alarm in Washington and a genuine conundrum of what to do, what to do on issues, uh, especially pertaining to the extremists in government and the possibility of uh, settlement activity and issues regarding the Palestinians, but also, tangentially, also this question of the judicial reform. Now, after all this and the firing of the defense minister Gallant, or the supposed firing, he hasn't actually been fired, and the possibility that this would really undermine Israel as an ally to the United States, we see Biden coming out forcefully, finally, from the perspective of many in Israel, uh, finally coming out forcefully for him at least, and and saying very clear words. So this is a this is a major news item in Israel, and is a major news item for Netanyahu as well. For all of Netanyahu's bluster and all of his fighting with Obama, he deeply would prefer to have a good relationship with a sitting American president, and and that is from a national security perspective that's very high priority. But I just want to make this point again, from a political perspective, it's also high priority. It's something that the Israeli voter is aware of. So these factors combined, really just in the last 24 or 48 hours, has driven Netanyahu to signal that, in fact, he is going to do what he just earlier this week had threatened, at least, to remove the Minister of Defense for suggesting, which is to delay implementing this particular set of reforms. There's also been talk about working towards some sort of greater consensus or compromise. So a signaling, although who knows how genuine or what extent it may actually manifest, of some openness to, to adjusting it somehow. Tell us what this sets the stage for down the road. What do we now expect to happen in the months to come? And what sort of commitments has Netanyahu made in terms of what's going to happen to this reform package moving forward? Well, in the process of all these demonstrations and the pushback, the Netanyahu coalition watered things down and said they would first push only one element, which is to pass a law that would allow them to appoint two justices. In, or allow any coalition to appoint two justices, and subsequently a third justice in any term would uh, be appointed in a regular uh, session, regular way, where the coalition would not have a clear majority. This, of course, is, as often is the case with this coalition, disingenuous, because the first two appointments, especially coming up now, would include the president of the Supreme Court. They would appoint whoever they want. The president of the Supreme Court is automatically also on the committee that selects uh, justices. He also appoints the other, or he or she right now, appoints the other justices on that committee, and therefore the coalition could have indirect control of the committee. That was uh, prepared for for vote, and in fact it passed everything in the committee. Even while Netanyahu was pushing within his own coalition and negotiating uh, with the extreme right to halt this legislation, the committee was pushing forward and passing all the amendments necessary and bringing it to the plenary for a vote. And that's where it waits. So at the moment, it's paused, but it's paused in a in threshold state, as we would say about a, a nuclear state. It, at any given day, the Knesset, which is chaired by a member of Netanyahu's only Likud party, uh, could simply bring to vote for second and third hearing in one day uh, this bill, and it could pass. And Netanyahu has given no assurances, no promises, no guarantees that it wouldn't happen. He said he's pausing it until the summer, which would allow now for Passover and then for some of the secular Israeli holidays, which are the Day of Independence, but also Memorial Days for uh, those fallen in service, which is a big deal in Israel, of course, and Holocaust Day. 
those could pass. Those are those are sort of the more unifying days usually. And then in the summer session of the Knesset, he says he will pass it. In the meantime, he's giving an opportunity for the president to convene uh, negotiations between the coalition and the and the opposition. That's where it stands at the moment. On substance, there are terms that, in fact, the coalition and the opposition could agree on. Many in the opposition actually do agree there needs to be some reform of the judiciary, but also the legislature, of the relationship between them. A genuine reform that also curtail the legislature's uh, capacity in particular to legislate basic laws, constitutional articles in a sense, so easily and to change them so easily. And then perhaps also have some limits on the Supreme Court. That is not at all what this coalition has been proposing. They were proposing, in essence, to to defang the Supreme Court completely and simply leave the legislature alone. So we'll have these negotiations. Again, if it were simply on substance, I think there could be an agreement. And I think many people could uh, sketch more or less what it might look like. But it's not really about substance. There is so little trust of Netanyahu anywhere, including in his own coalition. And I am very doubtful that he is entering these negotiations in good faith, very doubtful. He was forced to do so by the Minister of Defense and one or two others in his coalition coalition threatening not to vote with him, uh, and of course by Biden and by the demonstrations. But in theory, perhaps we could see the negotiation going somewhere, moving forward. If they don't, or even if they do partially, we'll see Netanyahu with a decision. Does he want to deepen the crisis with the United States? Does he want to risk a return to these mass demonstrations and uh, the economic crisis that might uh, accompany them? Or does he prefer, as he often does, to move on to another issue and somehow shelve this and kick the can down the road, which he's very adept at doing? Uh, I say this not necessarily derogatorily. Uh, that's, that's a good skill for a politician to have on some issues, and he's quite good at doing that. But we should remember he has a personal vested interest in this uh, reform because he himself is on trial. And if he wants to change the legislation that would allow him to get out of trial, he has to make sure the Supreme Court can't overrule that. And that is, of course, an important element of why all this is happening. Natan, one last question for you before we wrap. And that is that this obviously is a moment of unprecedented political action in Israel by a lot of politically motivated actors that seem to be, you know, perhaps even a majority of the country, if you look at polling numbers in terms of opposition to this particular reform package, but nonetheless is the faction that appears to have more or less lost the most recent election to Netanyahu. Do we see efforts to capitalize on this resistance to mobilize political factions in a way that can more effectively threaten Netanyahu than we've seen out of recent governments. All we've seen so far is one very, very slim coalition that I think held on to uh, the leadership for a little over a year before more or less falling apart. Is there any hope that this may drive towards a stronger consensus that doesn't include some of these extremist parties and views that might have a little more staying power to get Israel out of its political crisis? And as part of that, I'm curious, you know, the part, the faction that we haven't talked about in all this is Israeli Arabs, and then I suppose Palestinians more generally who who aren't part of the electorate, but nonetheless are major political considerations, certainly in Israel. How have they responded to this? And does this create any sort of change in their political calculus, how they engage in either coalition governments or the broader electoral competition in the country? So we have seen uh, dramatic changes in the polls, um, dramatic for Israeli terms, not landslide changes, but, but big changes. 
If elections were held today and, the, and if the polls are correct, Netanyahu would lose outright, and we might see a government led by either Benny Gantz or Yair Lapid. The big beneficiary of, of movement of votes has been Benny Gantz, who's sort of at the far at the right edge, the center edge of the old coalition, and therefore closest to the Likud in a sense. And we've seen actual movement of votes from the Likud to Gantz. So I think it's reasonable to interpret this. Of course, it's very superficial, but it's reasonable to interpret this as many more moderate Likud voters saying, this is crazy, this is going too far. Uh, this is also reckless by Netanyahu, the f- forming of this coalition and the management of this absolute debacle of a process. And I should say, even if you support reform of the Supreme Court uh, and the judiciary, or even if you support the whole revolution plan by Levine and Netanyahu, this was exceptionally badly handled. I mean, this is just a debacle. And so it's not surprising to see many Likud people perhaps say, uh, he's not fit to vote to govern right now, or we should see a more consensus candidate who can move forward. Gantz is no leftist. His party includes outright right wing people, very right wing in some ways, uh, but people who are against this kind of judicial revolution and in favor, in fact, ex- very explicitly in favor of deep reform, but reform through consensus. So we are seeing that, but we should just qualify. There are no elections coming up. Elections are four years away. Uh, the only way there would be elections or a change in government is two. One, if there was what's called a constructive no-confidence vote, if a majority, a full majority, 61%, 61 members of the Knesset, um, not only voted no confidence in Netanyahu's government, but also um, named a successor. So they would all have to coalesce around one successor. That includes the whole opposition Arab parties all the way to Gantz, and then, of course, also members of the current coalition because they have a majority. All of them would have to agree on one one alternative, maybe Gantz, maybe Lapid. That's not an easy thing to do. The other way, which is usually the way that Israeli elections are called early, is that the Knesset could dissolve itself. That, again, would require a majority, and so we would have to see defections from the current coalition. Could it happen? Yes. This coalition is extremely unwieldy especially with the far right, not just in terms of their opinions, but in terms of their conduct and their reliability. It's, it's a nightmare for Netanyahu. Uh, but on the other hand, can I now sketch out to you exactly how that might happen? No, I can't at the moment. Um, most of these people do not have any interest in elections. They don't want a Gantz or Lapid government. Uh, you could imagine a scenario in which some of the more moderate members of the Likud decide to break with Netanyahu, but it's very hard to actually think and practice who might that be. Perhaps the Minister of Defense, but not many others beside him. And that's in particular because those who might have revolted against Netanyahu already did so in prior uh, elections and are now members, in fact, of Gantz's party or are simply out of politics. And so those left in the Likud are really those who are already committed to perhaps uh, going down with the ship. So it could it could create real change, but I don't I, I can't sketch out how it happens in the short term. A year from now, certainly uh, it might be the case, but but circumstances would have to change somewhat, especially if there's another crisis of some kind, security, or economic, or otherwise. In terms of the Arab population, you know, there's there's two real questions here. One is the Arab politicians and the Arab parties or Arab-based parties, and the other is the 20% of Israelis who are Arab citizens, and then of course the Palestinians in the territories. To a certain degree, they're in a conundrum. This is kind of the Jews fighting amongst themselves. Um, Certainly the Arab citizens are part of the story and are deeply affected by the Supreme Court and its ability to defend their rights to the degree that it does, which is a significant degree, but limited in their view. 
they are also in a dilemma because the demonstrators who are not really organized, was very spontaneous, but have had this dilemma of are they now demonstrating against all that's bad in this coalition, uh, including the far-right policies, or are they focusing on the judicial issue, in which case they can bring into their fold right-wingers. And not surprisingly, they've chosen to focus specifically on the judicial issue and therefore also garner quite a bit of support from the right, as we see in the polls. That almost necessarily excludes some of the voices, the Arab voices, uh, to the dismay of many on the left and, of course, among the Arab population in Israel. They are in favor of the demonstrations by and large. They, of course, are very varied, but by and large. Uh, but they are not major partners in it. Would they be major partners of politics in the, in the future? I think, yes, if if there was an alternative government, uh, I think almost certainly they would. The Ra'am party, which was a part of the Bennett-Lapid coalition, uh, has not changed course. It would still like to be. And I imagine they would be uh, accepted. The other parties, less likely. It's hard to quite chart how that might happen, but perhaps. In many ways, this is a moment of sort of debate and question mark about what exactly is their role. What's not what side are they on? We know what side they're on, but are they participants? Are they welcome? Uh, it's a real time of sort of questioning. For the Palestinians in the territories, it's less so. This is an issue for the Israelis. They never felt they had democracy. Those of them who are under military rule are under the PA governance, which also includes the military element. Um, this is sort of a bit foreign to them, although I would say actually very important in some ways, but more on the margins. They are not participants. They're not citizens, of course. So it's a very different story for them. Well, we will have to leave the conversation there for now. Natan Sachs, thank you, as always, for joining us here today on the Lawfare Podcast. Thank you so much. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing, 
Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I wanna tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there and these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay and I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Now here is the audio for yesterday's panel, which featured Brookings Institution Senior Fellow Natan Sachs, Israeli defense expert Emos Harel, University of Maryland Professor Shibli Telhami, and Israeli journalist and legal expert Alana Dayan. I'm going to turn first uh, to Ilana, but before that, I'd like to note uh, that a lot has happened, and it's hard to imagine it's just been a week uh, of so much, so many events. But just in the last 24 hours, President Biden has said the strongest words he has yet about this issue. He has noted to Reuters that Israel cannot continue down this road and has hoped that Netanyahu would shelve uh, his proposals. He has also clarified uh, words that the ambassador to Israel has said and 
clarified that, Israel, that Netanyahu will not be invited to the White House in the short term. We saw Netanyahu come out with a very late night statement uh, in reply. We're going to get to that certainly, Shibli. I'll turn to you uh, very soon. Ilan, I'll turn to you first, though, if I may. Could you tell us a little bit about this moment? You took an extraordinary step on Uvda. Uvda is an investigative journalism venue, as I said. You've never had any personal views on it. You broke that. You said this is a different moment. Can you tell us a little bit, as an Israeli, as a journalist, as a legal scholar, what's different? It is a constitutional moment. Perhaps the only one we had ever since 1948, which is a, was a moment of grace in which the state of Israel was founded. No constitution was established, but the Declaration of Independence was written according to which this is a Jewish democratic liberal democracy. And all of a sudden, there is an assault on our democratic institutions, on the uh, supremacy of the judiciary in this country, on human rights and, and, and minority rights. And that is what brought me the other day, a couple of weeks ago, uh, to deliver this monologue on Uda, which was, even though it was something that I never did, I never imagined I would do, I always believed that our duty is to bring the news rather than the views, my duty, at least. Of course, I, I, I appreciate any other journalist who does otherwise. But for me, it was both rare and natural. It was all of a sudden very natural and very obvious to me that I have to speak my mind, that, that I have to speak my mind, that, and that it, 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 it goes along with everything I believe a journalist has to do in terms of defending democracy, in terms of defending our profession, in terms of defending the profile of this country as I see it. And also from a very personal place, I was not born in this country. I was born in Argentina. My parents came here because of Zionism. But as I said, they stayed here because it was the most perfect place on earth for us to live in and also for my kids. And they all intend to build their homes here, uh, straight homes and gay homes, but very Israeli homes. And and I said that uh, they, they know how to spot my opti- my fake optimism from miles and, and they, they, they can tell that I'm not as optimistic as I always was because, and, and I'll read just a couple of lines for it, because, because I don't believe when they say that everything is going to be okay. And uh, because uh, as this process moves forward, I believe that the rights of gay women are oppressed scholars, poor people, and eventually Orthodox and others will be harmed. And, and how do I know that? Because I believe most of what Simcha Rotman, the head of the judiciary, and Yariv Levin, the minister of justice, I believe what they say. And because a regime that insists on appointing councils whose advice will not count, insists on appointing judges according to their politics, and insists on cutting their wings just in case, insists on enacting laws which cannot be overruled and deny human liberties that we cannot live without, that kind of regime would take us to a place no democracy has ever come back alive from. Now, the Prime Minister on Monday evening suspended, stopped, delayed that legislation. Amos wrote yesterday that he's in the habit of turning one crisis into another rather than solving it. There is a lack of confidence between the two camps that I'm sure we'll talk about. And most of all, and that will be my closing remark, most of all, I think that even if there is a compromise, even if there's some kind of modification of this legislation, these people who are leading this process and leading this country have already been exposed for what they are. And they see liberal democracy as perhaps a threat to this country, or anyway, they don't see the future of this democracy the way many of us do. And uh, 
that's why I cannot tell you that I that I'm very optimistic. Not today. Thank you, Lana. I'm going to come back to you for in a moment for a little bit of the detail of why it is what what's so special about the the legal changes. But but Shibli, I'd like to jump to you now. Uh, we heard Biden's words. Um, this seems remarkable. Is it really remarkable? What does this say about the Biden administration and its approach to Israel, but also to this particular crisis? And if you could tell us a word about the background, not just the administration itself, but public opinion, Congress opinion. Yeah, thank you so much, first of all, for holding this, uh, Natan, and I'm, I'm really happy to join with my colleagues. Um, look, I mean, uh, this is really an important moment for Biden, particularly for Biden. And I say that because it doesn't measure up to the moment, let's say, of, of uh, James Baker withholding loan guarantees to Israel, because it's not action related at the moment. It's mostly words. But the messaging is is extraordinary, particularly as um, every side is waging a battle of narrative. And now this plays into a a very significant battle of narratives that has taken place. Uh, As you know, Biden has been far more sympathetic with Israel, far more reluctant to criticize Israel, even during the Gaza fighting, than his Democratic constituency, than Democrats in Congress. Uh, we have seen this in a public opinion poll. Many Democrats have been critical of his uh, overly embracing Israeli policies that uh, seemed objectionable from a lot of points of views. Uh, we've seen how Democrats have shifted dramatically, and the public opinion polls have been doing over years, how they've become increasingly more sympathetic with the Palestinians. We've seen the most recent uh, Gallup poll, which showed for the first time in all the years of polling, uh, Democrats sympathize more with the Palestinians than with Israel. And and they see Biden to be far more pro-Israel than they are in the polling. So this is important. This is obviously context in which it's taken place. Now, when Biden came to office, Biden didn't think he had to deal with this. Uh, honestly, to be fair to him, he had his hands full. And then you have the Russian invasion of Ukraine to boot, and you've got so much on your plate that he clearly wanted to do the minimum on this issue. Not, not you know, it's sort of more of a crisis management, reverse some of the things that Trump did, but not overly that, and keep peace with Israel. He didn't want to take on uh, any Israeli government. Now, things have changed so fundamentally that even Biden is speaking out. I mean, that's the point to make here, that even Biden finds himself in a position where he has to speak out. And and obviously that is a shift in sentiment, not just um, you know in 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 his administration, uh, and and probably getting a little bit more heat from Congress, but obviously the American Jewish community, which has been very much disturbed by what's happening. So people who typically may have urged him to be far more lenient with Israel may be urging him exactly the opposite right now within his constituency. So yes, that's a dramatic change. Now, whether or not he will go beyond that is questionable. Whether or not this will become, uh, let's say, will he stop shielding the Israeli government in international organizations like the UN, as he uh, did uh, just last month, um, that's a debatable question, but but it does impact the narrative. And it shows something. Look, the headline today in Politico over his democracy, that is Biden's democracy conference, is, quote, Netanyahu, the skunk in Biden's democracy party, unquote. Now, that that message, that that picture, that those words 
is con are conveying something you know really dramatic in the public shift uh the policy shift the, the i should say not the policy shift but the the narrative shift that obviously ultimately could have an impact on policy thanks so much Shibli. um we'll come back to this question Amos, uh, you were quoted yesterday in the New York Times uh, by Tom Friedman talking about the major crisis in the military and I, in the Israeli military. And it's it's very worth dwelling on this for a while because the instigation for the most dramatic moment, uh, the nightly enormous demonstrations in Israel, was the firing, perhaps firing, of the Minister of Defense, and which came after warnings for the Minister of Defense and after pretty widespread threats by reservists not to show up for training and for reserve duty, which is a line that I don't remember being crossed in Israel, certainly not in such numbers. Can you tell us a little bit about the mood in the military, in the brass, the top of the military and the Ministry of Defense? Where does it stand at the moment? Who is the Minister of Defense? I believe it's still Gallant. Will that be for long? Give us, shed some light on what's happening there. Okay. Uh, first, uh, thank you for inviting me. Well, the Israeli society has a, a huge place for military service. It's always discussed. It's always part of your um, CV. It's something that you're judged for 50, 40, 60 years uh, later. Think of uh, Netanyahu still um, using that card of Seyret Matkal, the elite unit that his brother commanded and died for at Antebe in 1976. And this might look exaggerated to Americans or Europeans, but Israelis still love the troops. Uh, and when it comes to elite um, fighters like pilots, uh, they actually admire them. And I think the protest movement understood that very, very quickly and quite spontaneously tried to use that, the threats of refusal, as um, an attempt to apply pressure on the government. And this is what um, really, really... Uh, turned the attention to the movement, maybe more than other uh, warnings or other threats. I, I'd say it's one of the top three with the economic situation or the potential economic economic damages and what's happening with the uh, Biden uh, administration. So this became a big deal very, very quickly. It's not as if there weren't uh, conscientious uh, objectors in the past. This happened during the First Intifada and mainly around the First Lebanon War. By the way, the atmosphere in the streets sometimes reminds me of that period, 82 to 84 or something like that, but I think this is probably going to get uh, worse. So if we look at the meaning of all this, I think that what the uh, pilots managed to do, and the pilots were leading the way, there are other units uh, joining in by now, um, uh, they managed to put themselves as the, the real patriots fighting against the right wing, and also uh, one more uh, important trick, if you'd like, that they used was um, reclaiming the flag. The fact that all of those uh, rallies, uh, everybody's carrying the, the Israeli flag with the Star of David is quite amazing, thinking back to the period where the left was blamed of being uh, pro-Palestinian or uh, cooperating with the Palestinians and so on. Um, secondly, this has had an immediate effect on the um, Air Force and especially its preparedness, because the Air Force, unlike other branches of the military, relies on Miluimniks, the, the reserve pilots, as the uh, they're the backbone of the of the service, and they're the most experienced, and they're actually they actually remain active. They train once a week, every week, 
and they're also part of many Air Force activities like the strikes you see in Syria and so on. Uh, and this has affected the Air Force already, and there's a big fear uh, among the, the, the chief uh, officers that this would actually um, really uh, affect the Air Force preparedness for a full-scale war, which is, of course, the, the, the biggest deal. I should also note, they're not really, uh, of course, Netanyahu calls them uh, refusers or refuseniks, but this is actually volunteering, especially as pilots. Nobody would force you if you're 40 or 45, if you decide uh, to resign, nobody would force you to, to fly dangerous uh, missions. Uh, I should also say that the reserves in uh, the uh, army are less important as they were before. They're more, um, part of them are more symbolic. If you go back to Ben-Gurion's doctrine regarding the military, it was based on the um, assumption that the regular units would block a strike from uh, foreign uh, Arab armies while uh, wait until the reserves appear and then the reserves would help win the war. This is what happened in 73. By now, only one and a half percent of Israelis actually serve in active reserve duty. So it's not as big deal as it was before, except two important branches of the army, which are the Air Force and the Intelligence Corps. And in those uh, two branches, uh, there's a big part uh, of reservists who are also now um, refusing. Everybody knows that those people would come once uh, a real war starts. But the question is, what happens if something in between happens? Let's say some kind of conflict with Hezbollah. Will those people who uh, declare that they'll refuse to appear, will they actually believe Netanyahu's good intentions, believe that Netanyahu is only defending the country and not looking for some kind of a political maneuver to get, him, to get himself out of the current situation? Uh, it remains to be seen, but it's, it's quite frightening. Um, going back to the Gallant uh, affair, I think Sunday was, and Ilana mentioned that before, Sunday, and you, you did too, Sunday was the, I think that the most dramatic um, height of the crisis until now, maybe Biden's um, declaration yesterday is more important in the long run. But the fact that he was actually uh, willing, Netanyahu was actually willing to uh, fire uh, Gallant under these circumstances, after Gallant warned him about the situation at large and also the situation among the uh, reserve uh, soldiers, this, you know, this cut to the heart of the matter. And this is why hundreds of thousands of people were on the streets. I can tell you that all three of my kids were marching and uh, protesting uh, that evening and other evenings as well. And I think that, you know, again, I'm, I'll reveal my age here. I'm slightly older than you and slightly younger than the other panelists here. But I don't think any of us, since we're not the 48 generation, I don't think any of us have seen such an atmosphere in Israel or something so dramatic. And 48, we were not there for 48, but this is the biggest thing that happened since 48. Uh, we'll have to see how it plays out. But we, Ilana and me, we texted, texted each other yesterday. I'm slightly more optimistic than she is. I, I may be unrealistic about this, but I think what I saw on the streets, although it's violent and frightening, I also saw a huge belief in the future of Israel among many young people who came to demonstrate. And this, this gives me hope that this could end perhaps slightly better than we thought. Okay, since we're doing Snake, let me follow up with a short question and hopefully a short answer. The Pentagon relationship with the IDF is a, is a core element of the U.S.-Israel relationship. There's, of course, enormous aid, but there's also very close cooperation, in particular now with Israel joining the CENTCOM Central Command, American Central Command uh, area of operations. How has that relationship been affected by this? Has much happened there? What's the reaction been 
from Americans dealing with the idea? It hasn't affected deeply yet, uh, but you have to remember, Gallant, the moment Gallant uh, was appointed as defense minister, that was late December, once the government was sworn in, Gov- Gallant was the great white hope for the American administration. Biden administration had deep fears about people like Smotrich and uh, Benkvir, of course, and were also suspicious of the Netanyahu's comeback, although they were surprised by the fact that it went so far to such uh, extremes. And Gallant was their point of contact. He was their man, so to speak. He was the man to do business with. And um, during the last two or three months, you saw how Gallant almost immediately stepped into Benny Gantz's shoes. The same guy, it goes all the way back to Rabin. Those generals who spent time in Washington in the past, speak by Israeli standards, uh, good English, know the, ter- the terrain, can speak in the same kind of uh, terms as the American generals. This is, the, the, the contact is almost immediate and the, the, the friendship is almost uh, immediate. And they were totally surprised. In fact, the uh, director general of the MOD, General Yaz Zamil, um, just arrived in Washington on Sunday evening. He got the news that Gallant was fired and took the first plane back to Israel. This is only goes to show you how serious the matters are. Having said all that, it's not even clear if Gallant is fired because uh, Netanyahu has announced that on Sunday in you know, an official statement, but he never bothered to send him the letter. And by Israeli law, it takes 48 hours once you get the letter to actually uh, fire you, to, to actually force you to leave office. So Gallant is still in office and is still attending the same meetings with Netanyahu in spite of everything else. This seems like an episode of Seinfeld, but this is where we are right now. Thank you, Moss. Okay, Lana, I'd like to circle back and ask you to, to wear your legal hat for a moment. What's the big deal? In the United States, uh, judges are appointed by the president, confirmed by Senate. Sometimes it's the same party, often. Isn't this a lot of a lot of noise over some small minor changes in some committee somewhere? Yeah, every time they say that here, that in the United States, it's political appointees. I come to think about gun control, about abortions, about so many things in America, including obesity, that I wouldn't want to import to this country. But to go to the point, uh, Nathan, it's, it's, it's a constitutional moment in the sense that history melts into structure and architecture. It's not only that Israel needs the judiciary as the fortress, the only fortress, not only the last fortress, the only fortress to uh, uh, operate, to function as checks and balances to government. It's the check and the balance. The Supreme Court is all of the above. That is why, because we don't have a written constitution, because we don't have two chambers of parliament, because we don't have a federal system of government, because we don't have a president with executive powers. That is why the Supreme Court is almost a sacred monument of Israel's liberal democracy. If it were not for the Supreme Court, we wouldn't have had equality for women. We wouldn't have had fighter pilots, female fighter pilots in the military. We wouldn't have had any kind of gay rights. All of gay rights in Israel that the prime minister is always so proud of are case law made, are judge made law. We wouldn't have had the right of defendants for lawyer and the the fact that the government has no permission or the judiciary has no permission to negate a lawyer. We wouldn't have had most human rights that are really enshrined and written and protected by case law in Israel. This is the the, the reason for which the plan to smash the Supreme Court 
to make it political, to make appointments to the Supreme Court political, to make sure that only a very special majority within the court can make or can apply judicial review on the constitutionality of laws, to make sure that laws that are just defined basic laws are immune from any kind of judicial review, and then to smash the authority of legal counsels to make their advice non, you know, not mandatory and not binding the ministers or the government in any shape or form, and then to split the job of the, 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 the attorney general and then to appoint a prosecutor general who might, God knows, perhaps decide that you have to abolish the indictments against maybe the prime minister who is indicted nowadays. So if you ask me, this is not you know, minor reform. It is not minor change in the balance between the judiciary and the legislative branch. It is an overhaul. It is a revolt against, uh, it is a des you know, an attempt of assassinating Israel's liberal democracy, no less. So this is big news. It's no small news. The good news, and I'm jumping on what Amos said, is that there is a liberal camp that all of a sudden awakened and is saying no more. But there's another news. And, 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 and by the way, there is a, there's a, a, a broad agreement that there might be a broad agreement, okay? If you ask Israelis by and large, if you ask the guy downstairs, the cab driver, the, the, the guy at the grocery store, even those or mainly those who voted for this government, many of those will tell you, we don't want this kind of reform. We don't want what's happening in the streets. Uh, we want it otherwise. We want it milder and we want it to happen according to broad uh, agreement and consensus. But when you ask me what's the big deal, uh, I'm afraid that by now the process, the social rift that we've been experiencing for the last three months uh, has left its marks and it exposed much deeper rifts within Israeli society. Amos was talking about the fighter pilots using their leverage. They don't refuse, they just they will not volunteer. And 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 and, and again it's legit I, I don't know the word legitimate is, is, is problematic in, in Israel when you when you talk about military service service that as Amos said is so sacred and so highly cherished in Israeli society. But let's say that the fighter fighter pilots understood that they have the power and Amos wrote the last Friday it looks like ages ago last Friday on Haaretz, if Israel will be saved, and if Israeli democracy will be saved, many Israelis will owe a lot to these fighter pilots and to these intelligence officers who said that they will not come to service. And, and I interviewed a couple of weeks ago, the former head of Shin Bet, Nadav Argaman, and he said that the same will happen within the Shabak, within the Shin Bet, within the security services. And he said, we serve the country we don't serve a king. This is how far it has gotten. But a development of the last couple of days, the last 24 hours, a group of mechanics within the Air Force, reservists, wrote a letter, and they say, we are against the fighter pilots. We are the ones who make sure that they have a plane to board. We are the ones that make sure that the, the plane is fixed and is ready to go. We are the ones without whom they cannot fly anywhere. And we don't agree with them. But they say more than that. They are up here and we are down there. And this is a variation on a subject on which Netanyahu has built much of his political career. The sense of many Israelis that they were left behind, 
that they were marginalized, that they are the underprivileged. Now, does it have anything to do with the reform? Not much, because the reform is not there to fix any of those social gaps, right? But it exposes the social gap. And those who are going to the streets are mainly the haves and not the have-nots. And those who are refusing are the fighter pilots and the intelligence officers, the privileged ones, the ones that you call from the first Israel and not the second Israel. Again, many people capitalize on that rift and Netanyahu knows how to use that rift. And he spoke about it even last Sunday, last Monday. But you have to bear in mind the scar is real. The sentiment is authentic. The feeling among many Israelis might be if the reform is indeed stopped, that their vote doesn't count. And they are frustrated once again that they voted for the right and they got left-wing policies. So that is something that we have to bear in mind. That is why I think it is the interest of all of us to make sure that some consensus somehow, somewhere, sometime is reached. The problem is that liberal democracy cannot really be split. You cannot have half democracy, a quarter of democracy, one eighth of a democracy. This is the problem. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about it so much. I think that the, all of us have to reach out, but how it can be done, what would be the details of such a compromise, and will it be enough to patch now those deep and, and historical rifts and frustrations that were exposed, I'm afraid it will not be enough. Great, so Amos, I wanna to get to you in a moment, but, but Shibli, we're talking about a deep rift among Jewish Israelis and a sense of second Israel, first Israel among Jewish Israelis. But of course, 20% of Israeli citizens are non-Jewish. And where do they stand? Where do Arab citizens of Israel stand in this reform? Uh, let me start actually where, where my colleagues ended, which is, yes, uh, among Jewish Israelis, uh, you can argue that uh, liberals have awakened. I mean, that that is very obvious here. But here's the reality of it. Liberals even if they're awakened among Jewish Israelis, have absolutely no electoral chance without the Arab citizens of Israel. Absolutely no chance. I mean, look at the trends. Uh, look at the public opinion among Jewish Israelis. Take Arab Israelis out of the game, and you have a, a solid right-wing majority, no matter how you look at politics in Israel, even with this awakened liberalism. And yet, they're not even part of the picture of this conversation let alone the Palestinians, obviously, in, in, in the West Bank and Gaza. Put that aside for just a second, because I don't think we can afford to put that aside, because they're, you know, we're, we're ignoring that reality. But so why aren't, why aren't Arabs out there in large numbers? There are Arabs who are joining Jews, and, and, and sometimes some of the Jewish rallies are hospitable to Arabs, but many have not really taken efforts to invite them or cultivate them. The language of the discourse has not been oriented towards them. And many of them feel, uh, you know, not in the same. So what, what is keeping them out? Um, and, and here's, I think there are a number of things that we really need to keep in mind. And we're talking only about those who hold Israeli citizenship. We're not talking about Palestinians under Israeli occupation. First, I think, the you know, a lot of the uh, liberal discourse is about you know, retaining what they think is an Israeli democracy, which is the status quo that preceded the crisis or preceded the rise of this. To them, that is not a full democracy for them. A lot of the grievances they've had, they continue to have, and many things have gotten worse in the past few years for them. And so in a way, you know, defending the status quo is not a particularly 
thing they want to do. They think they need to go beyond the status quo, and they fear that there's going to be kind of a legitimation of the status quo if this crisis uh, is averted. Uh, number two, they don't see the Supreme Court exactly in the same way. There's no question the Supreme Court, as Ilana said, has protected a lot of rights, including in many cases related to Arabs, but has not always been friendly to the Arabs and the Arab issues, in part because the Supreme Court focuses on narrow legal issues. And that does not overcome the structural discrimination in the system. For example, with regard to, let's say, house demolitions, where legally the Supreme Court can say, well, the law says, you know, this is illegal, but that doesn't capture the fact that many Arabs can't build houses because of zoning policies that were restricted their ability to build homes and so forth. So they don't see, and, and very often they find the Supreme Court has ruled against them. And so in that sense, they don't feel quite as attached to it, even though many understand that it's obviously better to have it than not. They're better off with the Supreme Court than we're not. Nonetheless, they don't have the same attachment. Third, they you know see hundreds of thousands of Israelis, which is really incredible. I mean, I don't. This is unprecedented. Uh, the, those of us who obviously, all of us who watch this, this is incredible. I mean, it it is something uh, you know to to come to grips with. It, it, it's uh, that we. It's like like the Israeli Spring, so to speak. You know, it, it's it's that kind of that kind of momentum that you see. But look. People ask, so where were these hundreds of thousands when the nation state law was passed in 2018, which obviously substantially restricted Israeli democracy for the Arabs? So you're only defending, you know, the threat to Jewish democracy. There were some demonstrations, in some cases, uh, reportedly up to 25,000 people, but nothing on this scale where, where the, the key victim of the nation state law were the Arabs. And people weren't out there. And, and and if you want to take it one step further, just think about uh, now the the pause that Netanyahu announced. Let's assume it's not a pause that it really ends it. He's not going to do it anymore. Um, okay, so what is what has he done uh, in, in order to get his supporters to do it? Uh, it came at the expense of Palestinians, Palestinians in the West Bank, Palestinians in Israel, uh, because if, in fact, he is giving Ben Gvir this national guard, which is essentially his own militia, which is principally going to be aimed at Arabs, they're going to see it as coming at their at their expense. And, and you're not going to have hundreds of thousands of people if he just to say announce tomorrow, I'm going to pull this, uh, I'm I'm going to stop the 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 change, uh, the 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 judicial um, upheaval, uh, and I'm going to instead uh, allow Ben Gvir to have his own National Guard, uh, you're not going to have hundreds of thousands of Jews uh, demonstrating because the Arabs are going to be frustrated or feel like they're threatened by it. So that's a, that's a, that's a reality. And this, of course, doesn't touch on the fact that this whole upheaval about democracy is dis- completely discounting any voice for Palestinians under occupation. There's a bubble in Tel Aviv, and that bubble maybe has burst a little bit now. But the but the bubble is to think of Israel and Israeli democracy strictly in pre-1967 Israel, when in fact the state has been dominating all the territories. And you know, you could you could think, okay, but the Palestinians are under temporary occupation. Well, it's lasted most of a century. And it's a military occupation, it's a military rule over people's lives. They they were half of the population altogether when you add the Palestinians on both sides of the green line, at least half of the population. And completely voiceless in all of this. They have no voice. So that's part of the reason why, you know, Palestinian Israelis feel alienated. Now, many of them understand 
that that it's still better off to win this battle that the Jewish liberals are fighting to to stop you know the judicial change. Of course, they understand this is going to be worse for them. Bad as things are, they can get worse for them, and many of them want to stop it, but they fear that the cost of stopping it will come at their expense anyway. So you have all this tension going on. I want to add one more thing, if I may, just just for this. I'm just thinking about it intellectually a little bit more. Somebody who studied Jewish history, studied Arab history, studied Palestinian history. And I'll look at it and I say to myself, you know, you know, I understand the pain of uh, Jewish intellectuals or Jews in Europe who wanted to assimilate, who were egalitarian, who were not mostly highlighting the Jewish identity in, 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 a, in a liberal environment in many parts of Europe in the 19th century. And obviously, the, war, the rise of nationalism and anti-Semitism forced them to focus on, you know, an, I, the way people, other people define them. And that generated a completely different momentum, both for Jews and, and the environment in which they exist. And I look at Arabs inside Israel, the assimilationists, and they're many. Uh, and you could see people in voting. They want to, they want to, yeah, it's an imperfect democracy, but they want to make it more perfect. They want to participate. The public opinion is on that side. You find people going in. You find business people who are integrated, people who want to be part of the state, even with all the restrictions that are going on there. But everything that has happened in Israel over the past decade has gone away from that, forcing them to focus more on their non-Jewish Arab identity. And that is, and that's what the what the nation state law did in you know in 2018. Uh, and look at, for example, at the Druze who 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 serve in the Israeli military, um, who were considered themselves to be part and parcel of the state. How they reacted to the fact that you have this, and now obviously with the far right in Israel being driving uh, the vehicle of of government, uh, I think this is this is really a dark moment. No matter what the outcome of this judicial battle will be. Thanks so much. Almost over to you. And in particular, if you could touch on on the Benville militia, if, if it indeed it happened, but elucidate a little bit what that means. Okay. Um, yet one one point I'd, I'd like to add to what Ilana's uh, spoken about. Uh, the, the whole issue of the, the two armies within the IDF uh, as a reflection of the first Israel and the second Israel, of course, everything uh, Ilana has described is uh, absolutely true, and the sentiments are there, and the scars from the past are there, and it's very, very clear that uh, Netanyahu is playing with fire there, trying to ignite fire in order to incite uh, one part of the Israeli public against the other. But the interesting thing is that even this letter by the mechanics may be a spin. It's not really clear how many of those mechanics are actually uh, reservists or served in those uh, particular roles. And there's an even um, uh, more interesting scandal right now, because two days ago, there's an interview, a radio interview that went viral and drove, actually drove the interviewer to tears when an, supposedly a former uh, Air Force mechanic who dealed with uh, fighter planes described his ordeal under those uh, Ashkenazi uh, 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 pilots, uh, elite pilots, and so on, it turned out that the guy was a technician in an Iron Dome battery and never never served as a reservist and never saw an airplane from anywhere uh, nearby. So again, uh, people are um, are using, of course, uh, all kinds of spins and all kinds of. Uh, but if I can just push in for a moment on this, nonetheless, the the weapon of we won't show up, although 
volunteering and not actually mm -hmm. refusing. That's a good point. But the perception of refusing to participate in common defense doesn't that open a Pandora box of then yeah, of uh, later of people? You know, and when and when you ask the pilots, they say, "Yeah, we're absolutely." Uh, sure that this is the case, but also this is the doomsday weapon, but this is the doomsday scenario. We're fighting to serve, to, to save Israeli democracy. And if we don't fight this by any means necessary right now, then we will lose this battle. And there's no point in fighting the next one because Israel would no longer be a democracy as we know it. Of course, it's a slippery slope. The, the left should be bothered not only by what's happening right now, but it's actually giving a sort of a green light to the right to use the same means and methods, for instance, when if there's if a miracle happens and one day in the future we discuss the possibility of um, um, evacuating even one illegal outpost, not to mention uh, settlement uh, blocks and and so on, the right wing would be uh, happy to jump on this wagon in that case because there's a precedent now and the, and the, and we have to admit the mainstream media is more or less supported uh, that. Going back to your question, it's hard to tell with Bengvir. I suspect in the end. That he's not much more than a troll. He's this was his whole political career for 30 years and his media career was very, very good at operating the media. He's a Kahana student, of course, but the, a, a Kahana follower. But the guy has never run anything. He ran a small uh, lawyer's office, which was uh, uh, its main role was defending all kinds of uh, extreme uh, uh, Jewish uh, right wingers or terrorists. He has no business in running the, the police or being in charge of the police. He's very, very far from performing something similar to anything we've seen in the past. And we've seen better ministers and worse ministers, but this is nothing uh, we've seen before. Netanyahu, under extreme pressure from Bengville during the, the, the current gallant crisis, promised him that he would have his National Guard. Now, this is an old promise. It was discussed three months ago when the coalition was funded, and it was discussed uh, two years uh, ago after the... Um, uh, the events, if you remember, in the Arab towns, the riots in the Arab towns during the latest operation in Gaza in May uh, 2021. Now what Benjamin wants is his own private militia. And more or less, Netanyahu's letter promises him something that will be under his control. It, it remains to be seen whether there's a budget for this, whether there are volunteers, whether there are actual units that can be established. This being Israel and this being the Middle East, it could turn out to be a, an empty promise. But this is frightening, especially because we saw those same Bengville gangs on the streets of Tel Aviv and Jerusalem in recent yeah. days, and they were listening to dog whistles. They yeah. were actually getting messages, whether it was from Netanyahu Jr. or from Bengville or from others on the extreme uh, right. And there were messages, those dog whistles, that some people understood as a sort of a green light to go on and attack leftists. And this is what happened on Israeli streets. Look, I wouldn't be surprised. It's mostly football gangs, football uh, followers who are organized in all kinds of gangs are looking for violence. I wouldn't be surprised if somebody is severely injured or even dies on the streets of Israel in the next few days because of what's happening uh, around us, because of all of this uh, incitement. Yeah, most you mentioned before that this reminds you of the early 80s, and in the early 80s, people were killed. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, 83, exactly. February 83. Ilan, I want to I want to touch again on this uh, this sort of rift and the very first instance of trying to maybe bring about some kind of resolution to the rift is the negotiations that have just started at the president's uh, residence in Jerusalem uh, between the coalition and the opposition. Correct me if I'm wrong. On substance, I think there's 
definitely room for uh, compromise, certainly between Gidon Sal, who's now in the opposition, but used to be a senior minister from the Likud, uh, and I think many others in the opposition and the Likud. But correct me if I'm wrong about this too, there is so little trust, and it's not completely clear that the negotiations are in good faith. What would these negotiations look like from a legal perspective and a social perspective? Do you see much chance for their success? No, I don't. Uh, and I'm afraid that's because of lack of confidence. Just today, there was a news report that the Minister of Justice, Yariv Levin, who led all this judicial overhaul, uh, he texted with a supporter of his and he said, I am ready to pass this legislation in the next term of the Knesset. We will make sure that people from within our camp don't disturb and that we are on the streets as well. Just to clarify, so, the next term means in the summer. It's the next the summer, session. Not, very, yeah. not, in, you know, not in the very far future. So, so you have that and you have the people on the protest where, as, as, as Shibli said before, it's something amazing. It's nothing that we've seen ever. Even what we remember, those of us who still remember in the days of after the, the first Lebanon war and after the massacre in the camps of Sabra and Shatila, it's nothing like anything we've seen before. So, and those people who are on the streets and their leadership, which is not one leadership, is not someone to, to deal with. There's no one leadership to the real opposition. The real opposition is not in the Knesset, it's on the streets. That is why I don't, I cannot tell you where it's going. I can tell you something that I that I have in mind and it has to do with what uh, Amos was saying about Itamar Ben-Gur. It, it goes deeper than that. The militia and the, and, and the fact that Netanyahu during 10 hours of Monday, last Monday, didn't go out to the public because he was dealing with Ben-Gur because he had to make sure that Benger doesn't leave his coalition, because without Benger, he doesn't have a coalition. What does it mean? It means that Kahana was normalized. That the very, very extreme far right, the far right that is racist, that is fascist, that is, might lead us to an apartheid country, is normalized now. And that brings me to the even more, more pessimistic thought, that what we are seeing nowadays is really a, a fight between the land of Tel Aviv and the land of Jerusalem. You know, they say about Tel Aviv that sometimes it is straight friendly because it is so gay friendly. Tel Aviv is the, the, the epicenter of Israeli freedom, of Israeli gay community, of, of feminism, of human liberties. And Jerusalem is the place where you have the, 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 the Orthodox universe. And nowadays, this is what you see. It's not only left and right. It's, it's secular and orthodox Israelis. It's Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. And what I'm thinking, what are we almost like three weeks before the Independence Day and the Memorial Day, three weeks, three and a half weeks? And I'm thinking about the fact that um, Amos Oz, the famous Israeli author, once wrote that Israel is a federation of mistakes that the people who came to this country and Shibli just uh, mentioned those Jews that wanted to assimilate and didn't want any kind of Zionist sovereignty, that you had those, and you had those who came here and dreamt of rebuilding the kingdom of David, and you had those who dreamt of reconstructing the state from the diaspora, and you had those who wanted to bring here or to build here a socialist utopia in the kibbutz, and, and somehow it all added up together. Somehow we managed to hold it together until it didn't. And this is what's happening nowadays, that all of a sudden these ties which were fragile to begin with are starting to tear apart. And it goes much deeper 
than Ben Gvir's militia or Yariv Levin's reform. It goes to the essence of Israeli society. I am optimistic only in the sense that I think, uh, first of all, I believe in the Israeli gene of democracy in our DNA, which, by the way, in the place that I was born in Argentina is everything other than this gene. And, 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 and the second thing is the, the sense of common destiny that most of us still have. That is the one thing that can save us. Plus one more thing that has to do with the near future. It is something that Netanyahu knows very well. It's the limit of power when it comes to international affairs. He was always very cautious in applying force, in starting wars, in going into military adventures. This time around, he was not as cautious when it came to an internal adventure. Perhaps he was led to it. it perhaps it was a combination of his personal interest vis-a-vis his trial and his partner's interests in all sorts of ultra-orthodox or ultra-right agendas. Anyway, he was led into this dead end. And I believe that his government and perhaps any future government will be from now on much more cautious, much more careful in the use of its power because Israelis have proved these last three months that they know how to fight for their future, for their kids, for themselves, and for their democracy. Thank you so much, Ilana. Shibli, you know, we, we just, Ilana, Ilana just touched on the international scene. And you obviously follow um, also regional news and, and speak very frequently to regional leaders. The Abraham Accords uh, several years ago um, were Netanyahu's biggest legacy achievement in a sense in foreign policy. Have they been affected at all? And, and I say this because the perception certainly when they were signed was that this was a turning of the at least the Emirati back and the Moroccan back uh, to the Palestinian cause, at least to a degree, a perception which, of course, they they would contest. And yet here we have seen at least some minimal voices, uh, signals from uh, the Emiratis, in particular after Smotrich said uh, several things. Is there any real change there? Is this pro forma or is this some kind of change? All right, let me first uh, say something about these accords, the Abraham Accords particularly, that created more normalization between Israel and the Arab states. Um, You know, I look at how the Israeli body, body politics reacted to them universally embrace them, uh, left and right, because there's this idea we need to make, you know, we, you were hungry for peace with the Arab states. Uh, and and some people wanted to, to build them as maybe even they can be an avenue toward getting um, Arab activism and addressing the Palestinian issue. Exactly the opposite has happened. Because while in fact, yeah, there is more economic and tourism uh, you know, strategically, it's not clear that anything really profoundly changed. They were cooperating in the past, Israel and the UAE, even Israel and the Saudi are in, at some level. But there is no question in my mind that the Abraham Accords have done nothing but to empower the far right in Israel. Uh, because what they did was to send a signal that all they're calling, meaning the, the expansionism that they want, the, the exclusion of the Palestinians that they want have no cost. And I think this, to me, is a message that needs to be internalized by Israeli liberals. This is not something that can be ignored. There, it's a slippery slope. You start someplace and you empower the radicals. It is true, you know, in this um, in, in new book that I've co-edited that just came out, the, 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 the One State Reality, Sociologist Gershon Shapir 
writes a chapter on Israel moving from a Jewish privilege to Jewish supremacy, uh, mostly religious religious uh, Zionism moving from Jewish privilege to Jewish supremacy. It's a slippery slope. And in un- unless there are certain costs across some place, that's what you're going to end up with. And usually you don't see it because you see it aimed at someone else. That's what angers Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, Israeli Palestinians, is the fact that they're excluded from this definition what's good for Israel, what's good for the Israelis. And because the outcome for them has not been good, certainly not for the Palestinians uh, in the West Bank and Gaza. Now, what will happen now? Um, Now, you know, Arab governments, like all governments, uh, Arab rulers, first and foremost, they they advance their own interests. You know, many of them don't, you know, they repress their own people. So let's keep that in mind. It's not something that these are advocates of democracy when they're doing it. The question is, how does this affect them strategically and politically? And I think up until now, it has been assumed that it wasn't going to hurt them much, particularly with, you know, let's let's be realistic. The Abraham Accords were principally built around the UAE agreement with Israel. Everything else was added. The UAE was mostly focused on relationship with the U.S. Those now are rocky between Israel and the right-wing government. That's going to impact the way they see their interests. It turned out that public opinion has not abandoned the Palestinians, as many have assumed. We've seen lots of that taking place. And as things escalate and become more violent, which is likely in the, including the possibility of having full-fledged intifada, there's no question that our public is going to be uh, drawn in. And so you already see them applying some breaks, trying to figure out how to navigate this space. And I, I, I doubt it that in this environment, number one, you're going to have an expansion of the Abraham Accords or expansions of the kind of accords that now exist. And number two, whether or not the Biden administration will champion that cause as it has in the past few months, whether or not it's not going to apply brakes on its effort to bring that about. So, yes, I think it's no question in my mind it's going to have an impact. Thank you. Amos, uh, turning to you on a follow-up on the same sort of theme, but a little closer. We titled this panel originally Israel's Overlapping Crises because there's a second crisis. Uh, We've already seen the past year a significant rise uh, in violent clashes in the West Bank and a erosion of the Palestinian Authority's control, certainly in the Northern West Bank. Can you tell us a little bit about how that is developing? And combined to that, we've seen infiltration from Lebanon, at least one case, perhaps tied to Hezbollah, and Iran closer than ever. We just heard the American administration and military discuss this closer than ever to the possibility of a bomb. In theory, this would have been the only topic we were talking about, the security arena. Could you sketch that Mm -hmm. out for us? And I'll, I'll give you two minutes to do so. (laughs) <laughs> okay. Uh, look, when you look back to Gallant's uh, speech, that was, uh, when was it, on a Saturday night, uh, he spoke of the crisis inside the military, but he also mentioned uh, the events in the region as uh, extremely troubling. It all combines together to a sort of a perfect storm. Um, as you mentioned, uh, the situation in Iran, in Lebanon, and the territories and on top of this, of course, is what the uh, Israel's opponents and neighbors see as Israel's weakness right now, and perhaps a temptation uh, to act. So you've mentioned Iran being on the brink of becoming a nuclear power. 
Uh, we saw Iran and Hezbollah um, providing more and more assistance to Palestinians in, uh, in order to encourage uh, terrorist attacks. And we're entering Ramadan, which is usually notoriously uh, a period where things are, uh, are slightly more hectic uh, security-wise from an Israeli point of view, especially on Haram Sharif and the Temple Mount in uh, Jerusalem. And as you mentioned, there has been this uh, very strange incident in Megiddo, which is closer to the West Bank, but actually, apparently, according to the uh, IDF, uh, the terrorists who blew up um, a road bomb there came all the way from the Lebanese border. Now, nothing happens on the Lebanese border without Hezbollah's consent or encouragement. And this is troubling from an Israeli point of view, because for the first time in 16 and a half years since the war in Lebanon in 2006, Hezbollah is actually risking something like this. It may be that the perpetrator himself was Palestinian, but Hezbollah was involved there. And this goes back to Nasrallah's recent uh, speeches in which he keeps attacking Israel as being extremely weak and keeps promising the Arab world that Israelis won't get to celebrate their 80th birthday, the Day of Independence, within uh, five years. So it seems as if Nasrallah himself and maybe other Arab leaders feel that they have more leeway right now to provoke Israel. So it's a quite a, a, a threatening combination. Security problems, Israel busy extremely busy with itself and not really prepared. The other side smelling some kind of a weakness, Netanyahu not at his best, and half a, what we call it, half a defense minister right now with Gallant. So it's a, the, the whole combination, it's, it's quite worrying that this could become a perfect storm that was actually brewing right now and might explode sometime in the future. Okay, um, I'm going to do a lightning round now. I'm going to do something very unusual for the Center for Middle East Policy, which is I'm going to ask you, demand of you your optimistic scenario. So assuming mm-hmm. that we're talking a year or two or five from now, and things aren't rosy and beautiful, but they're significantly better, try to think back, reverse engineer it. How did that happen? Ilana, think very quickly. I'm going to turn to you in a moment. How how did that happen? What is the reasonable case scenario here, whether it's domestic internally for Israel, whether it's relations with Palestinians, whether it's regional and security? Uh, Ilana, I want to turn to you, and, and especially in terms of Israeli society. How can things turn out okay? Stuff from this terminal is, as I most said, this perfect storm uh, to find the optimism other than the fact that um, Zionism, for me, very personally, was American, still is. Israel is American, a vibrant, curious, robust, democratic, nervous, sometimes unbearable, but amazing society, imperfect, as Shibli said, with many problems, and, and, and we see part of them right now. But there is something to this society, to its energy and its stamina and its optimism, and the fact that it is built on tragedy, but wouldn't have been built other than for its optimism, uh, that we, we will be able, I believe, to rebuild the future. And by the way, you see it in the polls. You see it in the polls. The fact that Benny Gantz by now is the big winner of this crisis in the polls it doesn't mean that it will, you know, turn out there are no elections in the near future. It says something to the fact that people want peace and quiet because that is what, what the guy represents, and uh, and 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 it says something. Not because you know the coalition is crumbling and Netanyahu has less mandates in the polls, and no, the fact that the vast majority of Israelis wants that to be over, to be over and done with. And, and, and the second thing is that I think Israelis have proven over the years that the only form of life, of government, uh, that they want to live in 
is, is a democracy in the sense that they need the fight, they need the quarrel, they need the debate, they need the dispute, they need the discussion. It's part of our, of our, of our blood system. And, uh, and, and, and again, the, the optimism comes also from the streets. And so if you, if you ask me, it, it, realistically speaking, I, I don't think that anything will come out from the discussions in the, in the president's uh, residence. But, but I think that the, the, the street will prove not only its power, but its responsibility. And I had a conversation the other day with a settler from an extreme settlement. I know him ever since the disengagement. He's a good friend of mine. He called me after he heard me on a podcast and he said, I didn't sleep through the night. I didn't know that we are so far apart. I said, Yako, I have no good news for you. We are that far apart, but we'll keep talking. And that's as best news as I can be. Ghibli, I'm sorry to do this uh, off the cuff, but uh, your optimistic scenario, how did it work out well? Well, I, as you know, I'm not particularly optimistic, but just to imagine that we could be, um, that, that this energy that came out of Jewish liberals in, in this episode and crisis could come into coming to grips with the fact that Jewish liberals in Israel have no path forward without a coalition with Arabs in the country. And then in the end, there is no path forward for any Israeli democracy without Palestinian freedom in the West Bank and Gaza. All of this is tied together to pretend that you could split one from the others is just, uh, an, you know, impossible in my opinion. And I think that really there isn't a path. I mean, look at the numbers, as I, I reported earlier, within uh, the trends with, among uh, Jewish Israelis. There is no path, even if you put for a second aside the West Bank of Gaza, there's no path uh, for Israeli liberals to prevail, to prevail without a genuine coalition with Arab citizens of Israel. And in the end, that wouldn't be enough because you cannot ignore the 5 million Palestinians that are under the gun their absence of freedom means there will not be a full democracy in Israel, no matter what you do. You almost same question. So I'll take a slightly more cynical view than my colleagues, and I'll I'll, I'll focus on the domestic uh, issue. At the heart of this matter is Netanyahu's faith. This is all around one man. Nothing of this sort would have happened. And again, it's a perfect storm of uh, domestic reasons as well. But nothing of this sort. Would, would have happened if Netanyahu wasn't facing such deep uh, legal problems. Now, I sometimes joke that the whole family is a sort of a cosmic punishment that the Israelis got for refusing to solve the Palestinian conflict. And I think that this matter, this specific matter, would end if Netanyahu would be pushed into a corner in which he, he, has see, he sees no other choice than reaching a plea deal. And if you remember, he was on the brink of signing one a year and a half ago when Bennett and Lapid were still in office. Then things changed and a year ago, less than a year ago. Things changed. The elections came. He, he won the elections and so on. But if you look at the recent week where he has failed to reach anything, uh, you know, and then uh, the, the Gallant affair, which was a huge mistake, then Biden's reaction and so on, I think there's still a slight possibility that at one time or another, if he does face this wall of resistance from Israelis, and cannot move forward with the legal matters and cannot pass the legislation, he may step back at one time or another. I don't think that it's a very plausible scenario. It's a possible one. And I think that the, those forces that were released that both my colleagues have mentioned regarding the Democrat liberal camp, I think that this is not going to go away anytime soon. People have uh, discovered their uh, political voice again. 
and this is a this is a significant matter. It could all go terribly wrong, and we've mentioned the the uh, external uh, reasons why this could uh, blow up. And yet, if it's all focused on one man, then at one point this man might think otherwise, and this could change the the, the even the you know the narrative of history regarding this crisis. Thank you very much. Um, I want to thank everyone who joined us uh, watching from home uh, and invite you to join us again for more events and to check out uh, the ongoing research by my colleagues and others and guests. Ilana has been, been a guest of ours before uh, at the Brookings website, brookings.edu. A special thanks to our guest, Ilana Dayan, calling in from Tel Aviv. Thank you very much for all you do, and thank you very much for joining us. And to my dear colleagues, Shibit Hami and Amos uh, El. Thank you again, uh, Shibli. It was a pleasure to join you when I joined Brookings. Almost, it's a pleasure to welcome you this year to Brookings. And thank you all very much. See you again soon. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please be sure to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to check out Lawfare's other podcasts, including Rational Security, a casual, lighthearted chat about national security news that I co-host each week with my colleagues, Quinta Jurassic and Alan Rosenstein. In addition, be sure to visit lawfareblog.com for extensive written coverage of national security law and policy issues and consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare to gain access to an ad-free version of this and other Lawfare podcasts, among other perks. This podcast was edited by Jen Pacha Howe on our audio engineer was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.